You're listening to another episode of the ABC Music Talk podcast. In this show, I get a chance to talk with a media entrepreneur who has unwittingly guided me through the twists and turns of the music industry throughout my career, but is also known for helping dissect the digital dollar. But first, a reminder to go rotor your videos. Rotor is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rotor makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rotor logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. Now, CMU, who feature in the episode where I discuss how online piracy is declining among young users, is for many a daily source of news and education to the music industry, but is also much more. And to tell us all about it, and to introduce one of the publications entitled Dissecting the Digital Dollar, is founder and MD of 3CM Unlimited Group, or as most people refer to him, that thoroughly pleasant chap, Chris Cook. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thanks for coming on. I appreciate the time you're giving to this. Um, uh, so quick caveat, this is another one of those ones that is being recorded during the, the COVID-19 lockdown. So if there are any technical issues, you know, blame Google or someone else other than me. Um, so, Chris, I'm a little nervous uh, because you are a professional podcaster. Well, we, we, we podcast frequently. Whether that makes us professional, I don't know. I do. I, well, I mean, other than things like Gimlet Media or Parcast, I do. It, it, it does feel a little bit like an oxymoron sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yours is called The Set List. Um, and I'll put a link to the show in the show notes. It's quite it's quite an interesting one because your podcast is one of the reasons why I do mine the way that I do it, because you guys cover the news super well. So I don't do that. Now, this will be in the what I call the current affairs, but it's not really kind of like news as in breaking news. It's more just kind of stuff of the moment, really. And so I, I know that uh, what we're about to get to is uh, kind of the, the, the next edition of dissecting the digital dollar. So handing the mic over, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and also this multi-layered company that you've built over the last, can I just say this, 22 plus years. How, yeah, it will be now. How, how do you feel about that? <laughs> That's a bit mad, isn't it? We've been doing, and it's been a very interesting twenty-two years to be covering the music industry. Indeed, and uh, it felt like the first ten years were going to be the really interesting years. But obviously, with everything that's kicking off at the moment, I feel the next ten years are going to be just as interesting. But I suppose, yeah, if I, if I quickly explain where we came from, so yeah, so CMU launched all the way back in nineteen ninety-eight. Our original aim was to try and create a magazine originally, because in 98, I mean, obviously the World Wide Web did exist, but it was early days. So print was still pretty much the dominant form of publishing. And so I had not long graduated. So I studied up in Edinburgh in the mid 90s. I'd moved down to London and me and a few friends who I'd known in Edinburgh, we were all doing various different things in media, communications, music, etc. And we had this idea of creating a magazine originally that would connect the mainstream industry with the grassroots music industry because you know, pre the sort of the explosion of the web and the internet it was quite hard to find the grassroots music industry we all knew where the major music industry was the mainstream music industry it was predominantly in london at that point mainly in west london in kensington or maybe around soho leicester square so we knew what the mainstream music industry was but the grassroots music industry was much harder to find so we wanted to create something that, that linked the two and we try to do that by by basically using the, the student music network because we were freshly out of university ourselves. Up in Edinburgh, I'd been very involved in student radio, student newspapers, student unions, student club nights, all of that stuff. And so our idea was, well, could we use the college network? The C of CMU used to stand for college. Could we really? use the, 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 the college network? I like that to connect the mainstream with the grassroots. And so we set up this magazine that used to come out fortnightly or monthly, depending on the time of the year. And basically, we should send it out to everybody in the mainstream music industry, so labels, promoters, uh, the Radio 1, MTV. We used to actually go into Radio 1 and put it in all the presenters and producers' pigeonholes and stuff like that. And then, crucially, we also sent it out to all the student unions, the student newspapers, student radio stations, club nights. And then slowly but surely through that, we discovered... The, the, the grassroots promoters, the people running fledgling record companies out of their kitchen, all of those sorts of people. And the idea was to, to have something that connected all those people and told them about great new music, great new artists, and kind of what was going on in the music business. Although initially that was kind of a small part of what we did. But then as the whole thing progressed, a bigger, bigger portion of what we were writing about was about what was well, certainly on the record industry side, what was a music industry about to go through a significant revolution? And so that's where 
CMU kind of came from. That's amazing. I didn't realise that there was such a ground level hustle there. (laughs) Yes, that that was very much it. And so we were a printed magazine for about four years and paid for by advertising because we basically sent it to free to everybody. But around about 2002, because we'd become much more about newsy stuff, so it was less about new releases and artists, although we were still covering all of that, but the news bit had become really important. And we had that challenge that... By the time we'd found out about something, written about it, edited it, designed it, printed it, posted it out to everybody, it sort of become out of date. And obviously a lot of media went through that. As everything shifted online, if you were still in print, by the time people were reading your magazine, everything was out of date. So in about 2002, we launched the CMU Daily, the daily email, because we'd been gathering email addresses for the previous four years. And so we started sending everybody the daily email. Initially, we had the magazine that it continued to go for a, sh- a short while after that, but then ultimately the, the daily bulletin became the thing that everybody knew. And I suppose in those days, well, I suppose in the early days, we, we did a lot of reaching out to the music industry because we were trying to build our network. But then there was a period in the mid 2000s where we were a little bit outside the music industry and sort of proud of that. And I suppose that's where the slightly tongue in cheek, sarcastic tone started to emerge in our daily bulletin i I, yeah i was going to mention this because i i have uh throughout the years uh sort of been on say a train journey in the morning reading the daily and just laughing out loud on the train people are you know they turn we're very british we don't like that do we on on, on public (laughs) spaces um and it's because i've i've just read something from the daily and it's just tickled me and so i've i've you know, put a tweet out and tagged you guys in just just congratulating you because the humour is excellent. Love it. And, and we're not as sarcastic as we used to be. We, we often say we think peak peak CMU snark was probably about 2012, 2013. Nice. Not really because we ever made a strategic decision that we're not going to be as sarcastic anymore. But I think the, part of that is in more recent years, we used to spend a lot of time making fun of pop stars. And I think probably the last pop star who had the full CMU sarcasm treatment was probably Bieber, was probably Justin Bieber. Oh, wow. But then in more recent years, once you've started to see pop stars being so prolifically bullied through the social networks, it kind of got to a point. Yeah. I, mean, I remember, do you remember when, when Kanye West went for a period of, of basically having a nervous breakdown? Mm. And, and we used to mock Kanye because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, he's very so, easy there's, there's, there's so much material. Because he just talked an awful lot of nonsense. But there was a period where we were writing about that. And then it was like, and it was one where he'd gone on a massive, I don't know, 50 minute monologue rant at a show. And you're sort of mocking him because that's what we do. And then you're like, well, hang on a second. I think there's something seriously wrong here. And we really shouldn't be mocking it. But yeah, I think in, in the mid 2000s, we, because we were slightly on the outside, we could sort of be sarcastic, but also I think sometimes say stuff that, because trade media are meant to almost pander to their industry. Most mm-hmm. trade media do this. I mean, some trade media will challenge their audience. Some trade media will cover the bad news as well as the good news. Mm-hmm. But a lot of trade media, ultimately, the underlying tone is you're all brilliant. Yeah. You, know, you are our audience and you're all brilliant. Whereas mm-hmm. our underlying tone has always been, yeah, you're all kind of idiots. So. Yeah. <laughs> they- or or uh, Andy, who now edits CMU, the way he always positions it is, on one level, it's kind of weird that a music industry even exists. The idea that there are all these people who have a full-time job out of music is kind of a bit bizarre. And he sort of likes to feel that we celebrate that more than the other music industry trade press. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure how I've been able to pay the bills all this time just from the music industry. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a revelation. But uh, I, I guess part of the, the, the problem there, what you're touching on, is the fact that these trade mags rely so heavily on the revenue that comes from either job placement adverts or adverts just in general or whatever you know sponsorship for an event you might be running so yeah if you're kind of continually ribbing them (laughs) and and as do we so we sort of a slightly bizarre business model that that we are selling advertising job advertising and and now a whole load of other services to the companies who we are also (laughs) quite often mocking and so it it is that sort of that that tricky balance but i suppose we we I think more than most publications, we do have a big divide between all of our commercial stuff, of which there is lots, and our editorial. So whereas a lot of trade publications, for example, I mean, we don't even have opinion editorial. We don't even have guest writers, which on one level is incredibly arrogant of us. <laughs> that we're sort of saying, only we can write for CMU. But the same, same thing is, is, you know, editorially, 
you know, on the commercial side, some of our commercial people, there's all sorts of things they've said over the years, like we should be doing this, we should be doing this, and we should. And some of our competitors do it incredibly well. Mm-hmm. But on the editorial side, we've always been very sort of, no, CMU has a real um, distinct house style, and we want to keep it very much like that way. But right. yeah, it is a challenge commercially to be balancing that sort of editorial style and and, and independence with having a... a a consultancy business and advertising business on, yeah. on the other side yeah i mean th- th- to me th- there's also echoes of the old uh do you remember Eamon ford's 58 magazine that he was doing out of fruit yes um, and yeah and his daily had a very similar kind of you know tongue-in-cheek tone yeah. well, even, was, even though fruit yeah it was a marketing agency wasn't it so yeah. i mean it, it, it and still is so it it was having to uh the business was all about getting clients involved yeah, yeah so it is it is finding that balance yeah. and then i mean the one the example that we always give is in the it sector there's there's the website the register yes. um and and i think that's another example of a trade publication that has no problems <laughs> being sarcastic about and slagging off the the, the industry on which itself relies mm-hmm. so we we often see there's a bit of a parallel with what they do i mean they're a bit much bigger than we are but there's, there's a sort of parallel editorially with what they do as well yeah very good and, and but so uh, but C- cmu daily is just that's just one piece of of the business and i don't think a lot of people in the music industry realize what you do because i went on linkedin you know i use that as a research tool could you just walk us through all the different kind of facets of the business that you've set up yeah so i suppose we, we, we focus just on cmu initially because we do stuff outside of music as well but all of our music stuff we do through cmu um, we tend to say there are kind of three or four different sides to CMU. So there's the media, which is the Daily Bulletin, which most people know. The podcast, you've already mentioned, mm-hmm. Setlist, which which is in theory weekly. At the moment, we're doing a good job of keeping it <laughs> weekly. We but go through periods of being insanely well, busy. Well, nothing else to do, right? You're just at home. No, exactly, <laughs> at the moment. And then if you pay us money, we have a thing called the CMU Trends Library, which we're really ramping up at the moment because we have some extra time. So there's lots of guides on how the business works. So that's our media. But then we also have our training business and our consultancy business and our education business. So we do lots of training. So we have our own training program of seminars and masterclasses. We're about to announce a whole load of online webinars because obviously all training is shifted online (laughs) in the recent weeks, although we, we already did webinars. So we have our own training program, but then we also do training courses for People like the BPI, the Record Industry Trade Body, MMF, the Managing Trade Body, Artist Managing Trade Body, I should say, more on MMF in a minute. Uh, For IMRO, the the Collecting Society in Ireland, for the MU, for the FAC, basically any organisation with initials for names. And that began in the late 2000s. We used to do workshops in order to promote the daily and the website. So that, that was why we started doing some educational stuff. So we would do workshops and lectures at music conferences or in universities and things like that. And then people started getting in touch and saying, well, how much do you charge for your training? And 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 we were like, well, hang on a second. Wait, what? <laughs> Maybe we've got our business the wrong way around. We've, we've been making money through the media and using these workshops to promote the media. Now people want to pay us to do the training. So we sort of, to use a horrible startup term, I guess, Pivot. pivoted the business. Mm. And we still do all the media stuff. And obviously we have a, a recruitment ad business that, that pays for most of that. But we pushed very much into training. And so we now do a lot of training courses for, I say, ourselves, for the trade organizations, and also in-house, people like Sony and Warner and SoundCloud. We do in-house stuff. And I mean, covers lots of things, but I suppose we're best known on the copyright deals business model side. And I think that's where we are our offer... Obviously, we have lots of competitors for all that we do, but I think we're particularly distinct when it comes to things like rights and deals and licensing. And, and am I right in thinking that you did a law degree? I have a law degree. So that wasn't my original degree. My original degree was English up in Edinburgh, which yeah. was just as well, because an English degree in Edinburgh in the 90s, you didn't really have to do any work, <laughs> which is which is how I was able to spend all my time doing radio and press and all of that sort of stuff and union events and clubs. But yeah, I then did a law degree here in London and that was Two reasons for that, partly because I was writing a lot about legal stuff. I was writing about copyright and the whole Napster online piracy story that we were covering on an almost daily basis at one point. I was covering about a lot of litigation because pop stars end up in court quite a lot. And so we were reporting on all of that. And I remember thinking, I I wish I really understood what was going on here. And then I think on the business side, when you own a company, you quite often end up in meetings with with other companies business partners clients whatever and every so often people will say things like oh we have to do it this way because that's what the law says 
uh, or we have to have this clause in the contract. That's just the way it is. And I always remember sitting in those meetings thinking, I'm pretty certain that's not true. But I'm not in a position to argue. So for both of those reasons, I did a law degree. It took six years because I did it basically half speed. Uh-huh. And, and it was such a good use of my time because A, on the journalistic side, I really have a really good understanding, certainly how the UK legal system works and then subsequently discovered how it works everywhere else. I, wherever I could, I focused on intellectual property and entertainment, which obviously is a big part of what we now do on the consultancy side. But also just, I mean, I remember once we got a contract that had a really bad intellectual property clause in it for a project we were working on that would basically have meant giving up copywriting content from the CMU daily. So I went back and said, I'm not signing this contract. I'm not signing this IP clause. And, and the client said, oh, we've spoken to our lawyers. They said that's just a standard IP clause. And, and I, was able, I was able to say, I am telling you, that is not a standard IP clause. I'll write you a standard IP clause. So then I could send that back. So yeah, I mean, that was sort of the reason. I have no ambitions to be a lawyer. Sure. I know a lot of lawyers, but I don't want to be a lawyer. But it, but it is journalistically, but also running a company, it is really good to have that understanding. And also just realizing the law doesn't really say a great deal about anything. So, so whenever anybody says something like, oh, the law definitely says this. Yeah. I remember there was, we'll talk about digital dollar in a minute. One of the digital dollar things that came up people started citing competition law. And I always remember one of the lawyers who we were sort of consulting on that project saying, whenever somebody mentions competition law, you always have to say, which competition law? <laughs> Point me to it. Because that's just a sort of a catch-all excuse when you, when you don't want to do something. Yeah. So yeah, having that knowledge so you can journalistically, I mean, we like in CMU explaining, there's lots of people writing about the music industry, but we like trying to explain quite complicated things in as simple a way as possible or a sarcastic way sometimes, because that then makes it easier to read. And and having a law degree helps with that. And yeah. plus, I say, in, in the business, it helps you push back uh, when and, people say nonsense. And, and that's, I mean, that's definitely a strength of, of all the work that you do, especially, you know, at conferences. I've seen you speak many times before. And again, that's what, that's what you're known for, being able to take fairly complicated things and just simplifying them. And The Great Escape is a, a good example of, of some of the work that you do. I mean, you, you program the whole the panel sections, don't you? Yeah, so we program the, what we call the core conference strands. So this would have been <laughs> well, pre, uh, that's my pre the shutdown. Yeah. This would have been our 10th year working wow. on The Great Escape. And so, yeah, in the early days, we helped create the entire conference program. And there's an awful lot of partners involved in, in The Great Escape. And then over the years, it slowly morphed. And so basically, we program the main conference room. So everything that happens on stage in the main conference room, we program. And again, it was trying to get... It's important to involve partners in a conference because without those partners, things like The Great Escape wouldn't happen. Sure. And a lot of those partners, they have great contacts. They've got great things to say. But then at the same time, there are some conferences that go too far the other way. And every single panel, it's like, OK, yeah, that's the Collecting Society panel. That's the distributor panel. That's the major label panel. And and it yeah. can feel a little bit like it's advertorial rather than editorial. I th- so I, th- I think it absolutely is. I think that's why so, it feels like that. <laughs> so we try to get it in the program. We've got the partner panels. And I mean, I still advise on those and, and we try and make them as, as editorial substantial as possible. And I think most of the partners we work with are really good at that. But yeah, in the main room, it's completely CMU editorial driven. And then we try and make it as timely as we can so that we are covering topics and i think you know we can proudly say that i mean there is a lot of music conferences yeah. these days but i think there are a number of occasions where we have covered topics amongst one of the first conferences to do so so things like the sudden obsession with playlists mm-hmm. i mean it's bizarre the first time we did a conversation at the great escape on pitching to playlisters on the streaming services it was a revolution in the room everyone's like oh my god this is a really interesting idea and, and with hindsight that that just seems bizarre because yeah. you know pitching to playlisters has become so at the heart of a music marketing campaign and then things like the whole mental health conversation i I remember there was just one year where suddenly i think on the back of the amy winehouse film a number of artists from multiple genres started making videos or writing blogs and i remember saying this feels like there's a really interesting conversation going on here we need to do something at the great escape on this and we did and and then you know in the two three years that followed it became 
uh, for good reasons, a, a really common conversation at those conferences. Yeah, completely. So yeah, so, so yeah we, we program the core strands of The Great Escape and we then present our own stuff at well, any, any conference that will have us. That's not true. <laughs> but, but, and lots of conferences all over the world. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, and so the, the Great Escape this year, I mean, what I mean, what's going on? Yeah, so the whole thing, unfortunately, just like South By, has been mm. pushed back 12 months. The problem with an event the size of The Great Escape some other smaller showcase festivals have tried to push into September and October. I mean, I wasn't involved in that decision, but I know that the, the core team, they pursued every possible option before making that decision. But I think, you know, pushing it back a few months, there are so many spinning plates in that event. Plus, of course, I mean, to an extent, it's not actually certain that we're going to be back to normal in September and October. I mean, we just don't know how long this is going to last for. So we had to make a decision because it was the event's 15th anniversary, our 10th year working on it. And so the whole thing has been pushed back in, into 2021. Wow. So um, we will make sure that 2021 is is bigger and better yeah. <laughs> as, as a result. Yeah, it's it's such a good event. I mean, you know, from a sort of music point of view, as much as the the, the conference that you're you're programming. No, no, and I mean, you know, it's it's and obviously the festival side is significantly mm. bigger than the conference side at the Great Escape. And so Adam and his team, Adam books the bands. Yeah, no, and I mean, when it when the final decision was made, I mean, it it, it was a depressing from our side because we've done a lot of work and we've got lots of great bits of research we were going to mm. present, lots of great speakers. But but I mean, compared to what Adam had put together for the 50th anniversary festival. It was just, oh, it's, and that was almost, I was depressed about that, partly because I knew how hard Adam and his team had worked and partly because I was really looking forward to experiencing that in the evenings as a punter. And now I can't, but we will in May, 2021. Excellent. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, <laughs> so other than that, has your business been affected much, how, you know, in other ways with the, the COVID-19, other than, of course, having to say COVID-19 a lot? Yes. I mean, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? How quickly it's all changed i mean there was a week where we started reporting on some of the american events that were cancelling i mean even though you know it's it sort of it makes you realize i mean we do cover events happening all over the world but it makes you realize you sort of have a north america european skew because obviously shows were being cancelled in in places like china and the other countries that were, were affected earliest earlier in the year. But I think oh, from a journalistic point of view, yeah, it was when the, when the first American event started to be cancelled. And it did feel like South By was the big moment for sort of the, the European and North American music industry. There was a period where it's like, well, why, why are we picking this event's cancellation and not reporting on this event's cancellation? But we sort of justified South By because it did feel it's such a big event for the US and the European music industry. And when they decided they were going to push back a year, it was like, wow, something big is happening here. And then every day after that. So journalistically, yeah, obviously, it's become a massive, big part of what we're reporting on every day. There was a period where, you know, at least half of the daily stories, including the, the main lead story, would be COVID-19 related. In terms of the business, it's sort of hard to, to tell beyond The Great Escape, because as it happened most of the training courses we had in the diary were webinars already. Those that weren't, we turned into webinars. We're about to announce a whole load of extra webinars for during lockdown. Mm. So I think on the training side, it is sort of business as usual. On one level, it's not had a huge immediate effect on us. But having said that, you know, our clients are in the music industry and, yeah. and certain strands of the music industry are facing huge challenges. The live sector, obviously, most obviously, but also retail and the um, physical distribution and the studio side because all of those are, are feeling such big challenges at the moment although it's interesting isn't it that the record industry not not wishing to downplay the genius of the streaming business but it was kind of luck wasn't it that the record industry ended up with a, a subscription business model that means that whereas 20 years ago, this would have been catastrophic for the record industry, because when the high street shuts, the record industry shuts, even in the iTunes era, mm -hmm. the fact that all promo cycles are down would have been catastrophic. Whereas, of course, in the streaming area, providing everyone continues to pay their £10 a month, then and, everything carries on as normal. And subscriptions are, are going up by all accounts. I mean, uh, well, uh, yes. And, and I, I obviously, video, I think the Netflixes of this world mm -hmm. have a bigger opportunity in terms of oh, lockdown. Sure. But yeah. But yeah, if, yeah. If, if the subscriptions continue to grow, that's good. So, it, so I think we've got this weird position where for a lot of CMU's history, the narrative was the record industry is in disarray, but look at the live industry, it's booming. <laughs> and actually, even at the start of the year, I remember at the UK Music 
dinner. So UK Music doing a dinner for all the journalists uh-huh. just before Christmas. Yeah. And I remember talking to some of the non-music business journalists. So some journalists come from the broadsheets who sometimes write about the music business, but they're not like us and our competitors that they always write about music business. And they said, well, what do you think is going to be the big trend? And I said, do you know, it feel, maybe it's just my symmetrical brain wants the narrative to be this way. But it feels to me that we're seeing a reverse of what we saw in the 2000s, which is I think the live industry is about to have a much more challenging decade. And I think the record industry is going to continue to grow. Mm. Little knowing (laughs) just how dramatic, uh, you know, uh, the events would be in the live industry. So, I mean, obviously, fingers crossed, this is for a few months, everything can get going again Mm. over the summer or certainly in the autumn. But I mean, I think the live industry, I feel, was already facing some challenges in the years ahead. And this has escalated everything you know, hugely. Yeah. So I say as a company that sells content and services to the music industry, if the music industry's fortunes go down, then I suspect our fortunes will go down too. Mm-hmm. So so short term, it hasn't had a huge impact beyond the Great Escape, but we will see. Well, I, I think the, the, the music industry will adapt and evolve. It has to, right? People are going to keep making music. And people are going to keep wanting music, aren't they? Exactly. So, so Supply I mean, I think, yeah. But I suppose the challenge, depending on how long this shutdown lasts for, is just that you know the people with more money can weather the storm longer. So, so it's okay. it's the, the the independent artists, the smaller companies, certainly on the live side. Mm. You know, how many of those will come out the other end? Yeah. And um, if we lose a chunk of those, then that's really bad for the diversity of the industry. So that yeah, that's something sure. we all need to follow closely. Flip side is live streaming something that people have been talking about ever since we set up CMU 22 years ago, and which, with a few exceptions, it never really felt anybody had truly capitalised on. I think we're seeing some great entrepreneurialism on, on that side. So maybe we'll get some exciting new ways of artists reaching fans and making money that, that can live beyond this. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I don't know, um, Harriet uh, Secret Sessions has been, you know, basically just trying to turn her business into a digital business, uh, which is... You know, I think she's, you know, she's talked about the sort of the challenges there because, you know, the entire point of Secret Sessions is to put people in a room together. And yes. you know, when, when you remove that sort of like sort of core element of it, it's just, uh, yeah, it's not, not an envious task uh, that she's got ahead of her there. But um, as are, you know, so many others. Right. Dissecting the digital dollar. Yeah, let's talk quickly about, talk about that. Let's, 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 let's cover that for sure. So uh, so this, this um, the, the, the history to this, as I understand it, 2015 uh, with the Music Managers Forum, the MMF, produced a, a kind of a report and then there were a series of kind of like follow-up roundtables with various people from the industry and, and now it's become a thing. Is that, is yes. that fair? So uh, you mentioned that we do lots of different things as CMU beyond the media people know us for. So we do lots of research and consultancy as well, working for all sorts of companies. But probably the, of all of that side of the business, the second digital dollar has become the biggest project that we've been involved in. And it all began, yeah, with the Music Managers Forum. So, so at that time, the MMF was run by John Webster, who most people knew, know as Webbo. Mm-hmm. And I remember Webbo phoning. And basically, the story went that this was probably about 2014, I think. We started work right at the end of 2014. And that was sort of around about the time when streaming really started to take off commercially financially so obviously spotify had launched several years before that all the early adopters had signed up we'd all signed up everyone was using it but it was around about then that serious amounts of money started to come in from the streaming services and so artists established artists and their managers would start to see the streaming line on their royalty statements which in the past had been so low that nobody really cared started to become you know serious sums of money and so on that one day of the year when an artist suddenly takes an interest in their royalty statements and they sit down with their manager and let's say they're signed to Sony as an example. And Sony's royalty statement says they're due £10,000 for streaming for last year. And the artist will say, well, what does that mean? How, how do they know that I'm due? Because obviously if you sell 10,000 records and the artist's royalty on a CD is a pound per album, say, then 10,000 albums, pound per album for artist royalty, £10,000, get that, understand that. But how, how, how is streaming worked out? And so artists started saying to their managers, how does this work? And the managers had to say to the artists, we don't know, we've no idea, because these deals were all done in the late 2000s. They were done by labels and distributors. They were done by collecting societies and publishers, a relatively small 
group of people were involved. I mean, you you were very involved <laughs> in yes. those early days, yes. but I mean, you were an exception. Most people were not. Mm-hmm. And so the managers didn't know. And so the managers would phone up the labels. But who do managers know at labels? Their contact is usually A&R. So mm-hmm. they'll phone up A&R at the label and say, well, how does this streaming work? And of course, A&R people will say, no idea, don't know how it works. And so the managers started phoning up the MMF and saying, well, you know, were you consulted on this? And the MMF were like, we've no idea. We don't know how these deals were structured. We hear things on the grapevine, but we don't know. And so that's when Webo phoned us up and said, will you work this out? Will you go out? and work out how these deals are structured, work out how royalties are calculated each month, identify any potential issues. And I remember Webo saying, we could get a lawyer to do this, but we're not sure lawyers are the right people to explain it <laughs> to the wider yes. world. And, but- and so they, he said, I, I think you, as in CMU, you're quite good at that. So, so that's what we did. And so, yeah, in that first phase, we spoke to lawyers and people at labels and distributors and societies. We spoke to people at Spotify and the other streaming services. We spoke to distributors. When you're doing research like this, the trick is to talk to the people who used to work for the labels and used to work (laughs) for the distributors and used to work for the collective societies because they are always so much more. I mean, obviously, some of them are tied by NDAs, but in the main, they can be much more candid. Mm-hmm. And so we spoke to lots and lots of people here in the UK, but also in the US and in continental Europe. And then we pulled all that together. And that was, yeah, the first report that the MMF published in 2015, which was free. That explained how it works. And it ended up being quite a long report because the problem with streaming is that if you don't understand the basics of copyright law and you don't understand how record contracts work, And you don't understand that publishing contracts are a bit different to record contracts. And if you don't understand the powers of the collecting societies like PRS and the even greater powers of the continental European societies like like, uh, Gamer and SASEM, if you don't understand all of that, you won't understand how streaming is licensed. Mm -hmm. So, So the report had to say, okay, well, here's some copyright law. Here's some stuff about record contracts. Here's some stuff about publishing and collecting societies. Here's what that meant in the physical era and with radio. And then this is how streaming is licensed. And then on the back of that, we raised, I think, seven issues, 15 questions and seven issues in the first report. So we then did a series of roundtables. MMF put those together, some with just managers, some with just artists, some with lawyers, accountants, labels, distributors, some with everybody represented around the table at the same time. We did them in the UK. We did them in the US. We did them in Canada. We did them in France. And then that was part two which was basically a summary of all of those discussions, which then sort of provided MMF an agenda, because during this time, Annabella Coldrick, the new CEO of MMF, came in. And part of her remit when she joined was the MMF had grown a lot in the years prior to Annabella's arrival when Webber was in charge and gone from being more of an informal network between managers to being quite a a serious trade organisation. And part of Annabella's remit, her background being public affairs, was, okay, we feel that managers and the artists and songwriters they represent, they should be more vocal on these issues. So therefore, the MMF should start to take opinions on things in perhaps the way that 10, 15 years ago it wouldn't have done. And so we were able to then use the Digital Dollar Report to say, okay, well, this is what managers think. Um, This is the manager's agenda. And then Annabella could use her experience to then turn that into a manifesto and MMF could campaign on that. So then things like the Copyright Directive came along and it meant that whereas 10 years earlier, the MMF wouldn't really have known what its position was on that. I mean, it would have to have gone and done a lot of bespoke conversations with managers to come up with a position. The MMF was able to say, oh, we've already done this. We know what our position is. These are our concerns. These are the issues. This is where we agree with the labels and the publishers. So whatever the labels and publishers say on these issues, take it that we agree with that. But crucially, (laughs) here's where we disagree with the labels and the publishers. And we feel that there should be different regulation, which we know the labels and publishers won't be campaigning for, which we think are beneficial to artists and songwriters. So, yeah, that's how what began as a single report ended up becoming the whole project that continues. I mean, so we've then put out additional guides, one looking at transparency, which was the big issue that everyone kept raising, one looking at how record deals have evolved, one looking at all the data that's coming out of streaming and all of the other online platforms. And then the most recent one last year, the way songwriters get paid is so complicated for all sorts of reasons we won't go into right now. As a result of that, we think quite a lot of money simply is not reaching songwriters. 
And and in the last couple of years, it's songwriters who remain the most critical about streaming. It's songwriters who say streaming doesn't work for us. We're just not seeing the benefit. And there are various reasons, you know, genuine concerns as, as to why that might be. But one of our big concerns is we don't think all the money's even reaching you. And and that's something that actually isn't Spotify's fault. Yes, there may be issues with Spotify's business model. Yes, there may be issues with the other streaming services. But if, if a portion of the money is getting lost as it flows from them to you, well, that's for you and your industry to solve. Yeah. And so that has been our focus in, in the last year is looking at what we call the royalty chains. The fact that on the songwriter side, a single stream of a song in Mexico, say, mm-hmm. the money to the songwriter could flow down three totally different royalty chains. One payment. So it could be 0.1 of a cent for a single stream and that 0.1 of a cent a third of it might go down one royalty chain a third down another and a third down another and at the end of each of those changes a songwriter and then if the stream is in australia it could be a different set of chains and and there are all sorts of reasons yeah, that's not it's nobody's fault it's not that anybody it's deliberately <laughs> set it up yeah. it's because you know the music industry and copyright was set up to work on a country by country basis and then digital came along wanting global solutions and i mean you 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 navigated that from the label side in the early days when apple came along saying we got our american license can we have a european license and the music industry had to say well no (laughs) it's not quite that simple but that said i think it's important for managers of songwriters and managers of artists who are also songwriters and those songwriters who don't have managers, because some, you know, a lot of songwriters who you know, are not also artists, less so probably in the UK and the US these days, but certainly a lot of continental Europe, they don't even have managers. And it's making those people aware this is a really big issue. And yes, we should be getting other things changed in, in the streaming business model. But if 20%, 30%, some people off the record go as high as 50% of the money is getting lost in the system then clearly we need to do something about that. And so that's a work in progress is we, we put out that report last year. It's the most complicated part of the dissecting just all above. That's the one bit where I don't think I have managed to really explain it in super simple terms because I'm not sure you can. Yeah. But we're trying to map those royalty chains with artists, with, you know, with real royalties, working with some of the managers in the MMF to map where that money's going and crucially where that money's getting lost. Yeah. So that's a work in progress. So we will be reporting back on that later in the year. And then I should say all of that work then got glued together in a book called Dissecting the Digital Dollar. And the reason why this is timely is we're just about, as we record this, yes. just doing the final sign off on a brand new version of that, which is fully up to date. So we've updated it, Music Modernization Act, European Copyright Directive, changes in the way the streaming has developed over recent years. So there will be a single book that has all of that work, super up to date, available via both the CMU and MMF websites very, very soon. Possibly, it may already be online by the time this podcast goes out. Oh, wow. Okay. That's exciting. Yeah, Depending so, on one last sign-off, and then it will be ready. Yeah, wonderful. And so it was It was about this update that, that I was kind of curious. Uh, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, I, I've been, you know, kind of in this bit of the business, well, a while. Um, and, you know, over, over time, I've seen, you know, I've seen the, the deals evolve. And uh, typically, I'm on the sort of digital distribution side, representing record companies going into these you know, so-called DSPs. In the very early days, the, the contracts were relatively simple. It was mostly about money, the sort of financial aspects. And then we start to see other kind of, you know, levers coming in, like marketing inclusions. And then we got into equity shares. And then there were sort of new models that came along, like Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and then, of course, new exploitation types in the sort of short-form audio around TikTok, Triller, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, have you found that, like, the, the update has is it's just necessary because the industry just keeps evolving that way? Yes, partly because the problem projects are work in progress so so every year more reports and guides come out so it's a way of being able to add all of that in but yes also the issues move on and and i mean you're mentioning you know user generated content and youtube facebook instagram tiktok at al which we do cover in the book although not to the extent that we cover the spotify model because right. as it currently stands the vast vast majority of the money is still coming in from the spotify type paid for streaming services but you're, I would agree, it feels like the next big round of growth in streaming is going to come from the user-generated content platforms, which aren't new because then YouTube have been doing this 
license. I mean, nobody likes the license, but they've had a license since 2008. So it's not new. But since Facebook, Instagram finally got their license and then with TikTok and all of those others, yeah, it does feel like the next bit bigger growth Hang on, that's not right, is it? The next big bit of growth is what I'm trying to say is going to come from those platforms. And yeah, with every new iteration, the deals just get even more complicated. And I think the one thing that's interesting to me, if you look at Tencent in China, so Mm -hmm. the the big player in digital music in China, so Tencent and NetEase, I guess, are now the two big players in that market. Tencent music is quite unusual for a digital music company in that it's profitable (laughs) and that doesn't happen much in streaming but why is it profitable it's profitable because of its karaoke service we sing that's where the money is being made and so that's where people go on they perform people then do sort of tip jar type funding to the to the performers so they they tip the karaoke singers that money then gets shared out between the karaoke singer and 10 cents as far as i can see not the publisher of the song as it currently stands. So that's a whole issue that's going to explode at some point. But there's the interesting question of, well, is that something that's only ever going to be big in China and Japan, where karaoke has always been, you know, not a cheesy thing that you do on a stag weekend? You know, it's a real part of the culture. Or could something like that then take off everywhere else? And then we have a third strand with extra complexities being, being thrown in. So yes, that, that is one of the reasons why we, we keep updating, we keep bringing out a new book, and, and therefore I suspect we're calling this the third edition, and I think there will need to be a fourth edition at some point. Because yeah. also, if I'm being honest with you, with things like the TikTok deals, whenever a new deal comes in, the managers have to start all over again Absolutely. and go back to the labels and distributors and society and say, well, how have you licensed this yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know... Often it's knowing, and I think that's where we, pre-digital dollar, it's knowing what questions to ask, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Often you go in and you don't know what questions to ask. So I think through the digital dollar work, the managers are on a much better position to go in and say, okay, how does this work? How does this work? How does this work? I suppose to be fair to the labels, distributors and societies, I mean, sometimes they are advanced heavy deals. It's sort of, you know, pay us 20 million today and then we'll regroup in two years time and see where you're up to, because Mm. that's the only way we can do this deal. And that's not that that's a bad thing to do. But then obviously, from manager's perspective, the big question then is, well, how are you sharing this 20 million Mm -hmm. with your artists? (laughs) How is that working? And so yeah, with every new iteration, there's a whole load more questions. Yeah. And and it's it's been interesting, I think, for managers, Uh, certainly, I felt this as you know, being somebody who was a, a digital distribution company. And so in the early days, because we had the technology to pass all the, the the sales data and then later sort of trend data. We were the kind of the, the only access point for, for anyone to, to, to find out what was going on. And of course, Spotify, Apple, Deezer and, and others now provide platforms which create a whole layer of transparency, which of course is brilliant, but invites a lot of questions. And, and the managers are now able to challenge, you know, perhaps those statements or kind of what's going on in very real time ways. It's, it's certainly, yeah. And- yeah. And making use of that, I think one thing that we're constantly banging on about because of digital dollar work is everyone's obsessed by the per stream rate, aren't they? And that the Spotify per stream rate is this and the Apple per stream rate is that. And it's an outrage that this is the per stream rate. And of course, as we both know, there is no per stream rate. Mm-hmm. And and I think, yeah, that's one of the challenges, isn't it? That, that something like Spotify for artists will tell you how many streams you've got. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, we can average it out. In any one year, we can say oh, approximately a million streams in the UK on Spotify the, at the moment will bring in approximately X. Yeah. But I think, yeah, the danger is people see that little JPEG that does the rounds on social twice a year mm-hmm. and says, okay, well, the Spotify rate is point X per stream. And then they do some very simple maths. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, hang on a second, where, where's all our money? And, and so it is, it's trying to educate everybody. Is it? It's not that simple. For, you know, and once you understand the deal, for obvious reasons, it's not, okay, maybe back in the day, maybe still today, some people in the music industry deliberately try to confuse artists in order to screw them over. Mm-hmm. But in this regard, it's just that it's a complicated business. We mm-hmm. needed a complicated business model. Copyright law and record contracts and publishing contracts throw a whole low layer of extra complexity. But it is, yeah, transparency is so important. But, but the question is, what do we even mean by transparency? You know, what, what, what do we want transparency on? And then once we've got transparency, what are we going to do with it? So I think that's a big part of the digital dollar conversation is we're always banging on about transparency. We're much more specific about what we mean now. When I say we really, I'm talking about MMF here. Mm-hmm. MMF now is much more specific about what it means by transparency. But then, yeah, the challenge is, but then what do managers do with it? Because if you're not careful, what comes back is reams and reams and reams 
of data <laughs> that yeah. nobody knows what to do with. So yeah, the, the, the challenges keep on building. But you know, at the same time, I think managers are much more informed now than they were five years ago. Managers are now asking the right questions. It was interesting earlier this year, the German managers starting to form a little committee and starting making demands of labels. And and from my perspective, which I think is really interesting because I think this is their digital dollar moment because as we know, the German market is behind mm-hmm the UK and the US when it comes to the shift to streams. It's, it's just taken longer to go from CDs to downloads and downloads to streams. So they are sort of where the UK managers were five, six years ago, which is like, oh my God, this is a really important revenue stream for us now. And we just don't know what's going on. Yeah. And so I sort of feel they are having their digital dollar moment now that the, the UK managers through the MMF had back in 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, re- it's really interesting. And so th- there are a lot of companies that have kind of come into process bit of the industry, right, in terms of sort of helping to get through royalties perhaps you know create good data visualization tools to help people understand what's going on so i'm thinking like curve stem on the royalty side and then of course companies like cobalt that have kind of pulled together lots of different aspects of the industry um, i mean do you, are, are they helpful in the way like for you to help explain things to people or do they just kind of make it more confusing i think some of those products are useful in that Quite often when we do our digital dollar presentations, at the end, we're basically giving managers a to-do list. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing managers don't need, it's more things on their to-do list. So it is useful to be able to say, okay, you need to be on top of your rights data, otherwise your artist will not get paid. And here's a couple of services you could use for that. And you really should be crunching data. There was a period where I think, because Spotify for Artists is a really good platform, and there was a period when Spotify was so dominant here in the UK, The managers started just using Spotify for artists, but then it's sort of saying, but beyond the UK, the other services are important. So not looking at the other data is is, is a weakness. And actually, what's really good is to be able to compare your Spotify data with your Amazon data with your Apple data. So then we can say, yeah, these services, these services are, are, are good. But I think the challenge for managers, because managers often work with lots of different artists who all work with different labels, distributors, collecting societies, etc., When each label and distributor comes along with its platform, however good the platform is, from a manager's perspective, it's like another another platform for me. And I think maybe one of the things that we have talked about and haven't really pushed with is maybe there needs to be, it's great that everybody's doing their own thing. That's competition. It makes people innovate, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe we could do with some standards, some standards in terminology or that, you know, I always know that this is going to be on a tab somewhere in the portal. Because I think that is the challenge for managers. And one of the reasons why they end up predominantly using Spotify for artists is if you're using six label portals and they're all totally different, then it, it takes quite a lot of time to work out how to use them. And then labels shut down their portals and open new portals. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's a whole new learning curve all over again. But I would say, you know, all of those things are definitely moving in the right direction. Um, but it, it is... You know, well, it's one of those things, isn't it? You, you sort of feel, are we going to do this for two years and everyone will catch up and then it'll be like this for the next 10 years? Mm-hmm. And then you sort of realise, no, it's never. It's, it's, it's going to be constantly having to learn how the new thing, the next thing's going to work, what actually is all hype, what people should be looking at. Obviously, from a CMU perspective, that's great because it means people need to keep on learning <laughs> and that's what we do. So, so in some ways, we like the fact that things are constantly changing. But I know from a manager's perspective, or indeed a label's perspective, you know, that is a frustration that you think you've just... I mean, it's like people who do Spotify, Instagram ad campaigns mm-hmm. for a living. That's what mm-hmm. they do. And I couldn't... I wouldn't have the patience for that. <laughs> but, you know, you know, they say they just crack it. They just work out, this is how you run an Instagram campaign for this kind of artist mm-hmm. in this country. And then at midnight with no warning, Facebook rewrite all the rules. <laughs> oh, no. It's... Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but I guess, well, you know, that's why there's an industry, right? Uh, I have to say, you did start to sound a little bit like a lawyer there. Like you were kind of glad that it's quite complicated, you know? <laughs> yes, still, re- still relevant, brilliant. Still got a job. Love that. Um, cool. Okay, so um, we, I mean, we are, of course, over time, but, you know, Way it's over fine, time. isn't it? So uh, is there anything else like kind of big that is going to change in this in this new edition other than what we've talked about? Well, I suppose the, the, the other updates are... are legislative to an extent because we we have the european copyright directive not here in the uk as it happens but the rest of europe the music modernization act in the us doing very different things what was happening in europe what happening in the us very different but they they are both seeking to deal with a number of the challenges so all of that is in there also there have been some cases in the courts etc so all of that is in there although even then the directive is yet to be implemented Mm -hmm. so 
all that's all about the safe harbor and user yeah. generated content platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And even the Music Modernization Act, I mean, the new society it's launching hasn't launched yet. So, so all of those sorts of things are bang up to date as of the day we publish. It's been one of the annoying things. A bunch of stuff happened in January. It was basically finished. And then some stuff happened in January. The UK announced that they weren't going to implement the copyright directive. So I had to go back through everywhere where wow. we talked about the copyright directive and say, but this ain't going to happen in the UK. So, so yeah, all of that stuff is, is um, updated and we will continue to monitor what happens with those sorts of things. And as you said, the new services, you know, as new services come online. So obviously everyone's talking about TikTok, but what's also interesting is ByteDance's actual music service mm-hmm. that they've launched in mm-hmm. India. Yep. And there's certain things about that which are a little bit different. Is it different from a licensing perspective? Maybe it is because of the sort of visual stuff going on, which means new rights are coming into play. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, it, following those new services, I suppose that from with my copyright geek hat on, that's always my, whenever something like that comes in, it's like from a user experience point of view, from a marketing point of view, I see why that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean for the rights? You know, what, what new rights are we now exploiting? Who controls those rights? What will the license look like? So, yeah, that's the other thing that we touch on in, in the new edition, but we will continue to monitor as those new services gain momentum. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it's Oh, it's fun, this business, isn't it? It is a lot of fun. <laughs> well, it, I, sometimes I do the copyright stuff for a non-music audience because uh, we, we, obviously there are lots of people who are not in the music industry who want to understand how music copyright works because mm-hmm. they want to use music in adverts or in their own content on YouTube or whatever. So we, we quite often do workshops for a non-music industry audience and i i always remember doing basically explaining how the streaming business works to a group of people who are not from the music industry and at the end you sort of say okay does that make sense you know did, did you follow what i was saying <laughs> and i remember one person saying well it makes sense as in i understand what you've said but it doesn't make sense that that is how you were said it. <laughs> that's lovely that is lovely. Uh, I, uh, yeah. So yeah, there are you know all sorts of bizarre things, and obviously journalistically, you know that that's we we like the uh, it, well, it helps us with our sort of tongue in cheek sarcasm when things yeah. end up sometimes being a little bit mad, um, and then of course every so often everyone falls out, don't they? Of course. And and again, from, from, with my consultant hat on, it's always like we don't want to fall out. The last thing you want to do is go to court. We have to find a way of making this work for everybody. And mm. actually, quite often, despite everything, when you get everyone round the table. You, you can often find a way to make things work. But of course, my, my journalist hat on, <laughs> it's like, get this in court. You want a really nasty, horrible piece of litigation. You do love a court case to report on. That's what's fun to, to report on. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, it is. Uh, all of these things continue and we will continue to monitor them daily uh, for the years ahead, I hope. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Chris. Uh, thank you for having and, me. Uh, so, yeah, please do tune in to, to CMU. A good place to start is their Twitter handle, at CMU. I will, of course, put other links in the show notes. Do go and check it out. It has, as I said earlier, guided me through this uh, crazy old business of the music industry for many, many, many years, or many, 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 many years, as it may well be, and many, many more to come, I hope. So to my listeners, thank you for listening. I welcome all feedback, comments, and suggestions for future shows. My Twitter handle is at Alex Branson. Put podcast DM in a message and I'll message you back or head to the website, which is www.abcmusic.co. There's a contact page there where you'll find my email address. So thank you once again, Chris, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.